turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Let's pray as we come to God's Word. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you, by your Spirit, help us to hear what it is that you have to say to us through your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, friends, Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. It's here, uh, the word of God. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Well, you may have noticed that the Oprah Winfrey show went off air this last year. And with that passing, we're left with Dr. Phil. Uh, Unlike Oprah, Dr. Phil pulls no punches. His style is the no-nonsense style of the Texas ranch. His message is not find your inner child, of many a hand-holding psychologist, but instead get real. That's his uh, message. He was uh, controversial for this kind of up and at him approach. And he was labeled and described Oprah Winfrey when he first started as someone who tells it like it is. Many of us like that kind of approach these days. It's touching a common contemporary nerve. Uh, Think of Simon when he was on American Idol, that TV program, saying it straight, verbally shooting from the hip. There's something about that we're drawn to. We've had enough spin. We now want our doctors to be truth-tellers, not spin doctors. What would be the real deal, the get real message about the contemporary attitude to religion? Perhaps these days, and especially in the years since September the 11th, the politically correct view of religion is that all religions lead to God. There's no one truth about God. There are many paths up the mountain of spirituality, we are told. And increasingly these days, we've become frightened of any contrary view to that popular one. It appears to many people to be potentially actually dangerous for anyone to espouse that their truth is the truth. 
Isn't that exactly what the Taliban believed? Is that the kind of dangerous extremism that creates suicide bombers? Surely Jesus would be appalled by such arrogance. Surely he, of all people, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, he would agree with this politically correct view that spirituality is our private affair, not to be forced on anyone else and always to be discussed in a manner that not only respects the right of others to have different viewpoints, but also accepts the views of others as true without question. This is my truth. Tell me yours, as the title to one pop song put it. Isn't that what Jesus would think about religion today? Well, I don't think so. Jesus may not be quite like Dr. Phil, but he isn't quite like the Oprah show either. In fact, there is, it seems to me, listen carefully, a thinly disguised category error going on here. A category error is when you compare apples with pears. There are two different categories. You should compare apples with apples. And there's a category error thinly disguised underneath the surface of much of contemporary attitudes to religion that confuses the issue. So we want to see more compassion in the world. We want peace, of course. And so because of that, we tend to say that all truths must be accepted as true. But that's really a category error. Truth and love are separate categories. You can love someone with whom you disagree, and you can love someone that you agree with. They're not the same thing, truth and love. We should not confuse them. Both are important. What I think about God and truth and the ideology of life will affect how I behave, and so is important. But believing in one God and one way to be saved through the Lord Jesus Christ does not mean I need to be unloving to uh, those around me or unaccepting. In fact, if you're a Christian, Jesus tells you to love your neighbor. It's because you believe he's the truth that you do love them. Now, intellectually, that is fairly straightforward. But this category error is so common today that we find it hard to get to a place where it feels right. And so you see here, one of the things that's going to happen as we get into this uh, Revelation chapters 2 to 3 is we'll get a chance to hear what Jesus thinks about religion and in a way that perhaps will help us feel the truth of that power. Now, this morning, we're looking at his letter to the church in Ephesus. And each Sunday morning, we'll take uh, one of those letters to the seven churches of Asia, the Roman province of Asia, and carefully look into it for what Jesus thinks about religion then and now. The book of Revelation is filled with traps for the unwary interpreter. Its images are vivid, its style is unfamiliar, and there are more opinions about the book of Revelation than there are chapters in the book of the making of commentaries on Revelation. There is no end. We're not going to be looking at the whole of the book, we're just looking at these letters to the churches in Asia. But as we do, we may find some important things about how to interpret the whole book of Revelation. In particular, of course, we can see that this book then was written to these seven churches. Take, write, send letters to these seven churches. And these churches actually existed. They were real congregations of Christians in the ancient 
world, in cities which had their own character and and, uh, struggles for the Christians to find their own faith in their context. And as such, there is a context then to the book of Revelation, these seven letters against which the vivid images and apocalyptic terminology can be best understood. Now, I've read over the years a lot of very long uh, commentaries, some of them helpful, some of them not helpful on the book of Revelation. And the bottom line, I found, seems to be that there are two ways of looking at Revelation, one wrong, the other right. The wrong way to look at Revelation is to try and find some esoteric meaning that is not disclosed elsewhere in the Bible. And this is a popular approach, always has been. People seem to feel the book of Revelation is essentially different in message from the rest of the Bible. But this, as soon as you lay it out, you can see has to be wrong. Now, the right way to look at the book of Revelation is to see that it's basically saying the same thing as the rest of the Bible, but in a different way. It's like the difference between listening to a Beatles song and then watching an artistic video rendering of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. They've both got the same message, but the medium is very different. Or perhaps it's, uh, you know, reading Revelation the same way you read Romans would be like interpreting that Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds as about someone called Lucy flying in the sky with literal diamonds, you see. There are vivid pictures to this book. So here the medium, the apocalyptic genre, as scholars will call it, of the book, apocalyptic is just Greek for the word revelation, which is the first word of the book, and it draws upon many images from the Old Testament of similar kinds of literature. It paints vivid images, but the message is the same as the rest of the Bible. That's one layer of interpretation to get straight. We're not really going to find anything here that the book of Romans would not teach us as well, though in a very different way. The other layer within this basic right approach uh, is that there have been four different ways Christians have looked at the book down through the years. One is to say that everything in this book has already happened. Now, the trouble with that has always been that some of it clearly has not already happened, like the final triumph of Jesus Christ and the new heaven and earth. The second approach then has been to say that everything in this book is still to happen. The trouble with that uh, clearly has been that uh, some of it has clearly happened, like some of these letters we're about to get into will show you. The third then has been to say that Revelation maps out in detail all the events from then until now and the second coming of Jesus. That's another approach people have often taken. The trouble with that is you can find no two people who agree over what the metaphors refer to. It's a highly subjective approach to the book and it tends, of course, to be biased towards the Western culture and history from where most books on Revelation are written. So then the final approach commonly has been to say that the whole book is symbolic. And this approach, and the trouble with this, of course, is that this approach is loved by those who do not think that Jesus is literally going to return again. Now, as we'll see, some of this book is extremely literal, while other parts are highly symbolic. So what is the right approach? Well, that it is dramatizing what the Bible has already said elsewhere. 
which is that Jesus Christ has come and died and risen again, and He will return to judge the world. And we Christians are to get security from this Jesus who stands holding the lampstands, the churches, the stars, the symbolic representations of of the churches in His hands. He is in control of the destiny of the whole universe and of this and every church. And so those two points of Jesus' advent, His first and second coming, are the linchpins of the Bible and the very pillars upon which the edifice of Revelation stands. Jesus is coming. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And in the meantime, as it was for these churches in Asia, and as it is for some of us Christians around the world today, there is much persecution and suffering. Just look at the church in Nigeria. This is a very real and relevant book. See, these Christians in Asia were also suffering, undergoing sore trial. Why was that? Well, the Roman Empire was persecuting Christians. Why? Because the Christians were being persecuted because part of the political process of the time involved the civic duty of worshipping the emperor as God, and they would not do that. That was the rock. The hard place was that the Jewish community had been a safe haven from this persecution of the Roman Empire. You see, they had been allowed to avoid emperor worship through a historic agreement with the empire to sidestep explicitly indulging in emperor worship. And as such, Jewish Christians, still until recently then a welcome part of the synagogues, could avoid emperor worship through the Jewish community. But around this time, it seems, the Jewish community began to expel Christians from their midst by means of a formal curse against the Christian faith in their worship services. So that was the hard place. Christians then were either being pushed to worship the emperor or deny Christ. And the Roman Empire viewed them as rebels if they failed to do either and persecuted them as such. And here come the letters. To Christians in such a situation, urging them to stand true to true religion and avoid false religion. What Jesus thinks about religion. Or briefly now, in this letter to Ephesus, we see that according to Jesus, religion without love is not much of a Christianity. So he tells them first that their hard work is good. He tells them second that their moral clarity is good. He tells them third that their doctrinal orthodoxy is good, but none of these without love is sufficient. So verse 2, hard work is good. Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Or verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Jesus thinks then that all this is good, their hard work, their perseverance, their endurance, they're not growing weary. This is all good, and Jesus commends it. It is for his name. It is a good thing. You see, the church of Ephesus was a key beachhead in the mission to the province of Asia. Paul himself had planted the church. The church was in this megapolis of trade and pagan religion, and they had done well. From Ephesus, the word had gone out far and wide, and the book of Acts tells us how many came to hear the apostle Paul preach and see the miracles he did from all over Asia. 
And then from Ephesus, it seems, churches were planted throughout the interior. Ephesus' hard work then was famed. It was perseverance, was commendable, and it was ambitious, it seems, for yet more. It had not grown weary. Jesus commends this. It is a good thing. In the Republic of Azerbaijan, I was working planting a Christian community with a younger Christian from a neighboring country. We flew in on an airplane held together with duct tape, and we began to work as soon as we arrived. We got up ridiculously early. We pounded the streets. We worked the bureaucrats to try and get an entranceway for other Christians. We encouraged local believers. And this younger Christian was employed by a uh, sort of busy, not-for-profit organization in his normal day job. But at the end of the second day, I remember, exhausted late at night, he simply lay on his bed and said to me, we are working hard. Well, of course, the Christian's church's mission requires hard work. This church will not be built to the next level by us sitting there and taking it easy. Hard work, especially in the face of persecution, Not just active hard work here, but also the passive endurance there. Probably not here, but there are places in the world where the political climate is such that a great Christian testimony comes from simply staying, remaining a Christian there. In fact, I was talking to one such brother just a a few weeks ago. True Christianity, then, is not a social club. It is not inactive. It is vigorous, energized, hard work. This is good. Are we working hard? If so, be commended. Moral clarity is good. So verse 2 again, Jesus says, I know you cannot bear with those who are evil. We'll look at verse 6. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So Jesus clearly thinks that moral clarity is good. Now, no one knows exactly who the Nicolaitans were. We can surmise what they stood for. They, it seems, were teachers of a kind of religious license whereby the freedom that Christ had won the believer meant for them a freedom to sin. Therefore, idolatry and sexual morality, these moral issues and the letters to the churches are closely related to the teaching of the Nicolaitans were practices that they condoned, they allowed. And the church at Ephesus had distanced themselves from these works, these practices. They hated them, as did Christ. They would not tolerate wicked men. Moral clarity was theirs, and Jesus himself commends them for it. Oh, my friends, moral clarity is needed today. Issues of sexuality need to be addressed clearly and helpfully, surely. For today, the relativizing moral message tends towards a split personality rationalization of our behavior. That is, we say to ourselves, sure, I want to please Jesus. But then in a different context, we say, but I can do what I like. This is a kind of inconsistent me as some have called it, very common today. People are split personalities, morally speaking, often. They feel they can espouse one thing and do another. And that sounds like the kind of thing the Nicolaitans were practicing. Have we stood against this as a church, as individuals? If so, Jesus commends it. Moral clarity is good. It is needed. It is needed on the global scene. It is needed in private lives. It is good. 
Doctrinal orthodoxy is good. Verse 2 again. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them false. And verse 6, it connects to these Nicolaitans whose practices, their works that they are opposing. Now again, theories abound as to who these false apostles were, just like who the Nicolaitans were. No one knows for sure. They may perhaps have been the Nicolaitans themselves. Or they may have been a legalistic group, like a sort of twin pincer attack on the church with a libertarian group on the other hand. Perhaps that's the most likely. We don't know. But it is good evidence, those scholars around us interested in the New Testament documents and their dating, it is good evidence for a very early date, at least the first century, whether 69 or 96, for an early date of the book of Revelation, the question of who was and was not an apostle was still a live one at time of writing. And we know that the church at Ephesus had the doctrinal mooring to stay orthodox. This concern for teaching is good. We want it from our pastors, from our elders, from everyone who's a member here. You see, often false teaching is motivated by moral issues. It was the great pioneer of postmodernism and the philosophy of meaninglessness, Aldous Huxley, who candidly at last admitted that his intellectual theories were for personal moral reasons. In his book, Ends and Means, he wrote, Those of us who detect no meaning in the world generally do so because for one reason or another it suits us. For myself and for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. We desired liberation from a certain system of morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. There was one admirably simple way of confuting that system and at the same time justifying ourselves in our political and erotic revolt. We could deny the world had any meaning whatsoever, and we did. Sounds familiar? You see, doctrinal aberration is actually usually fairly easy to refute intellectually. It was George Orwell who said that some ideas are so silly that only intellectuals will believe them. And you know what I mean by that. You see, it's not the intellectual foundation that gives heresy its attraction. It's the moral excuse that it provides. We want to be like this, to live like that, and therefore we invent a God in that shape. Well, the Ephesian church would have none of it. Standing as they did on the foothills of the great temple to the goddess Artemis, a temple which was one of the seven wonders of the world at the time, they would have had plenty of reason to cave in to syncretize Christianity, compromise of pagan formulations of doctrine, and attracted to the fertility roots of the pagan goddess Artemis. They did not. They tested They knew their Bibles, they knew the apostolic message, and they stood firm upon that word. This was good. It was commendable. Jesus commended them for it. And yet, and yet, doctrinal orthodoxy is good. Moral clarity is good. Hard work is good. None of these is enough without love. Verse 4, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. 
Repent, Jesus says. He emphasizes it, I think, by saying it twice. Why? They had abandoned their love they had at first. You can imagine the congregation saying to themselves, well, we're doctrinally orthodox. Who could fault us for our zeal for truth? We work hard. We have moral clarity. Is all this not enough? No, Jesus says. There's something far more important, Martha. There is the first love. They had forsaken their first love. Rochelle and I have been uh, married for a few years now. We've had our ups and downs like any married couple. It's certainly been good for me being married. I hope it has for Rochelle as well. Before getting married, I used to travel to preaching events, just throwing a suitcase in the back of the car very fast. I still pack extremely quickly, but then I would forget all sorts of things important for the occasion. It was a lottery what I would forget. One time, I kid you not, I managed to forget my shoes, my tie, and my suit pants. (laughs) I have never been invited back there again. (laughs) Rochelle's been very gracious with my previous bachelor ways. If I learnt one thing during my time as a married man, it is this. What Rochelle needs from me, above all, is my love. Sure, there are other things that are nice. Without love, I wonder whether they are meaningless, even perhaps brutal. Love is what she needs from me and wants from me and should get from me more than anything and everything else. It is my job to love her. What does Jesus mean by you have abandoned the love you had at first? There have been many suggestions. Some have suggested uh, the love within the Christian community. But for myself, I think the first love can only really be the first love of Jesus and for Jesus. You see, in all their hard work, it seems to me, in all their moral clarity, in all their doctrinal orthodoxy, they were nonetheless within a whisker of completely losing the plot. They'd forsaken their first love. You know, they were going out earning the wage to work. They were doing the dishes and taking out the trash. They were faithful. But when was the last time they had told Jesus they loved him, fallen on their knees with tears on their eyes and said, I love you, Lord? Without real and genuine love, you see, the very stability of their relationship, the lampstand of the church, was shaking, was literally in danger of being moved. Well, what could you do about that? They must have been thinking to themselves, and Jesus tells them, very straightforwardly. What you need to do to regain the love you had at first is to do the things you did at first. What does that mean? Well, in other words, say this morning you are a Christian, and I don't assume that we all are. Everyone is welcome here on Sunday mornings, whether a seeker or a member or visitor. But say you are. Jesus is asking you to remember the things you did soon after you first became a Christian or first became aware of Christ if you come from a Christian home. What were those things? Can you remember? I've been thinking about that a little bit, and I think for me it was evangelism. When you're in love, you tell everyone, don't you? You want to. And for me, I remember the zeal overflowing, just telling everyone about Jesus, whether they wanted to hear or not. Perhaps I need to get back into that. Perhaps you do. 
It's interesting to me that the one thing that this church is not commended for is their evangelism. So often that's true, isn't it? As, as for us, as we get older, we become still doctrinally clear, but perhaps less outreach orientated. Perhaps for you it wasn't evangelism, maybe it was prayer. Maybe you were like Mary, falling on your feet and just talking to Jesus, reading the Bible. When was the last time you opened the Bible, not to go through the routine, but to say, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, that Jesus is going to talk to you. But maybe you're not a Christian. You are a seeker or searcher for truth and meaning in life. You're here with questions, not answers. Well, let me encourage you. If one of the things that puts you off Bible-believing Christianity or organized religion is that which seems loveless, well, you're not alone. Jesus is put off by it too. And not just passively disapproves, but actively speaks into the church when His Word is opened up to change the church to be more loving, firm on the truth. He doesn't want them to shift from that ground, but also compassionate with love, filled with love for Him and for each other. And for those who do repent, there is paradise on offer. Look at these words of Jesus, to the one who conquers I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Of course, these phrases are deeply evocative of the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, from which John draws many of his pictures, but they're also acutely relevant to the situation the Ephesian church was facing. The goddess Artemis had her temple and the sanctuary there surrounding an ancient tree cult. Jesus is saying that is a mirage. It is false religion. There is no salvation in it. Instead, Jesus is offering the true tree of life and the real garden of God, the paradise, a Persian word originally for royal garden, the restored Eden in heaven on offer for all who overcome. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for these letters to the churches of Asia. And thank you for their example to us in many ways of things that they were good at and things that they needed to learn. We pray that like the church at Ephesus, we would be doctrinally, morally clear. We would work hard. And we thank you, Father, there are so many of us in this church who are like that. We pray also, uh, Father, that we will listen to the word here about regaining our first love. Would you thrill us with who you are as we come now to this table? Would you excite us with your love and cause us to, by your Spirit, to uh, 
have that love at first well up into doing the things we did at first. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.